doubt noticed you've been reading the paper at all or checking uh, the news sources on the web that there's been a little brouhaha locally regarding an apparent effort to smuggle arms and explosives over to Laos in effort to overthrow the communist regime there. Implicated in this plot is General Vang Pao, currently an Orange County resident and Vietnam War era Hmong general. The Sacramento News and Review republished an interesting article about General Vang written by Nick Shaw, which originally appeared in the Orange County Weekly. The article noted that uh, five years ago, the city of Madison, Wisconsin, dropped a plan to name a park in the honor of Vang Pao after a University of Wisconsin professor cited numerous published sources alleging that Vang Pao had ordered executions of his own followers, of enemy prisoners of war, and of his political enemies. Xiao went on to say the AP didn't name the professor in question, but anyone with a cursory understanding of the CIA's role in Southeast Asia's heroin trade knows his identity. Alfred W. McCoy, whose 1972 book, The Politics of Heroin, CIA Complicity in the Global Drug Trade, is considered a landmark study of the Golden Triangle region of Burma, Thailand, and Laos. It was my privilege to interview Professor McCoy when I was over at Insight in conjunction with an appearance here at UC Davis last year. And we're pleased to say that uh, joining us now from Madison, Wisconsin, is Professor Alfred W. McCoy. Dr. McCoy, welcome to Radio Parallax. Pleasure. Now, you, you have been following this case of, of Vang Pao and his arrest and this, uh, this alleged coup plotting for Laos? Yes, indeed. And what do you make of all this? A couple things. First of all... Uh... For about a quarter of a century, uh, Vang Pao and his, his his entourage have been engaged in a kind of lower level of this same activity. Uh, from the early 1980s, uh, he had collectors moving through all of the welfare housing projects, which were then occupied by poor Hmong in California, Minnesota, and Wisconsin, making regular collections of 10 to $50 a month to support the resistance in Laos. And then using the refugee camps uh, in northeastern Thailand, he, his supporters were mounting operations across the Mekong into Laos, infiltrating and engaged in low-level either resistance or terrorist activities, depending on your perspective, uh, blowing up infrastructure, shooting up buses and the like. Nothing of great consequence. Fang Pao did kind of lay claim to larger-level activities, but those are actually activities by another Hmong resistance group uh, called the Chao Fa, which is religiously based, actually quite uh, historically opposed to Vang Pao, uh, and not, uh, not aligned with him. Nonetheless, he sort of took credit for all of it. And the Chao Fa were sport, sponsored mainly by China, People's Republic of China, back in the 80s and 90s. This is, this is kind of, the, the, the uh, if you want, an elaboration my, my analysis, and it's just it's just analysis. It's 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 kind of inference and hypothesis. Um, is you know uh, is as long as the refugee camps were based in northern Thailand and northeastern Thailand, Vang Pao um, uh, could operate uh, abroad. He could uh, uh, provision, mount, uh, and preside over operations from Thailand. So. Uh, 
the the acts which the U.S. government considers now illegal were mainly being done abroad and and, and didn't come under the purview of, of U.S. law enforcement authorities. As the camps wound down, beginning in 1994, uh, and slowly people were moved out, either to Laos or the United States, Bang Pao's operational capacity inside Thailand diminished. <clears throat> and I think that's why he did a lot of his planning, uh, in this case, in California versus abroad, uh, simply because he didn't have the same level of operational capacity he once had. Well, I, I was quite stunned to drive past uh, downtown Sacramento here, the courthouse, and see something, I don't know, something in the order of a, a thousand or two people out in protest. They've been uh, all over the Capitol steps here in, in Sacramento. And he does appear to have quite a, an army of, uh, of people mobilized in his support. Is he kind of the godfather of the refugee community? Uh, factions within the refugee community. Uh, he's very controversial within the Hmong community. Indeed, the opposition to him is growing, which is why his operations have come under increasing state and federal scrutiny. In 2005, uh, the Minnesota State Attorney General investigated the Vang Pao Foundation in Minnesota, found $500,000 in unaccounted for funds. They managed to track $32,000 by his son, Chao Vang, to a jewelry store in Bangkok, Thailand. The State Attorney General of Minnesota uh, wound up uh, the Vang Pao Foundation and barred the general's son from serving on the board of any charitable organization in the state for the rest of his life. That kind of thing would not be possible without sources inside the Hmong community. So he's, you know, he does have his supporters, and many of them former officers who fought for him in the CIA secret army in Laos. Uh, he does also have a lot of opposition in the Hmong community. Well, writing in the Sacramento Bee, Stephen uh, Maganini was uh, looking at some of the documents regarding this plot and uh, was quoted some people saying, we're very critical of the fact that this was actually a credible effort to, to, to topple the government in Laos, saying they were trying to budget something like $5,000 for mercenaries, and they were pointing out that, you know, an ex-Army Ranger Special Forces mercenary typically costs between 100000 and $500,000. Do you think this was a credible effort to... Uh, to Elicit a coup? Uh, that's a, that's going to be a matter of, of the court to decide. <clears throat> I mean, uh, if you take the evidence on face value, it's it, 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 the statements that are attributed to the to Vang Pao and his eight co-conspirators. Uh, they certainly seem to be trying to mount a plot. They were purchasing weapons. Uh, they wanted to make as what's his name uh, Lo Chatao, one of the co-conspirators said, make Vien Chan look nine eleven like nine eleven. Mm-hmm. They were hoping to get Stinger missiles and, and the like. Um, so, I mean, you know, if the evidence is valid and stands up in court, uh, they were certainly hoping to to, to wreak some mayhem. Um, but look, <clears throat> I mean, I, I uh, this has been going on for a quarter century. And the Laotian government, which is a reasonably efficient communist dictatorship with strong state security services, as as, as often happens in a dictatorship, They've, they've been dealing with this kind of low-level activity now for a quarter century. I, I really doubt that this would have done any serious damage to the Laotian government. For example, let's just assume that, let's say, the, 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 let's assume that they got the Stinger missiles. All right. The, most of the Lao Air Force is based up in northeastern Laos at Pong Savan on the Plain of Jars. They don't fly that often because <clears throat> they, don't, uh, can't, they can't afford the aviation gasoline. And when they do, they practice very low-level uh, contour flying. I've watched the Lao Air Force operate in the 1990s up there. Uh, they do amazing tricks and stunts. 
and a Stinger missile wouldn't bring these guys down. So the possibility that one of Vang Pao's people could get all the way up to the plane of jars with an RP with with a Stinger missile or an RPG and have a decent shot at a a Lao Air Force jet is improbable. On the other hand, they could very easily have hit a civilian jet flying out of uh, Vientiane International Airport. Uh, so I, th- I think this was simply just a, a continuation or an elaboration of the kind of low-level resistance come terrorist activities that Vang Pao has been engaged in for decades now. One thing that surprised me in reading about this was that apparently the, the government of Laos has been pleasantly surprised by actions taken here in the U.S. to, in essence, thwart this plot. Are we seeing sort of a warming of relations between us and them? Uh, the relations have already been warmed. Uh, uh, we've now worked out good relations with three major uh, communist states in Asia. The People's Republic of China, which is our, one of our largest trading partners, as everybody knows. Uh, Vietnam, which is, uh, now receives massive amounts of U.S. investment, lots of Vietnamese Americans from California, as I'm sure you know, run, are running business now in Vietnam. Uh, and we have uh, lesser developed, but pretty good relations with Laos, and Laos is a major source of hydroelectric power for Thailand, which is a very important Asian tiger uh, and a major trading partner of the United States. So Laos is now fully integrated into the world capitalist economy, uh, and they, they, they do have, of course, a communist dictatorship, which, which we occasionally mention and are trying to change, but it's, that's a fairly low-level priority in the post-Cold War era. So our relations with Laos are now perfectly repaired, which is why uh, I think that the federal government had to crack down on Vang Pao. You know, the, there have been reports of illegality by Vang Pao uh, for decades now, uh, extraction of money, uh, from welfare recipients involving uh, intimidation, uh, threats to his opponents in the Hmong American community, and then this kind of low-level resistance come terrorist activity in Laos itself. And Vang Pao always had a free pass during the Cold War era. He was a freedom fighter. Well, that's 15 years ago now. Uh, and yesterday's asset, intelligence asset, is now today's anathema. Because if Vang Pao had actually carried off that plot, if he'd actually you know, purchased a Stinger missile in the United States, organized a plot from the from the United States that brought down a an aircraft, probably a Thai aircraft, in Southeast Asia. That would have made a complete mockery of our war on terror. <clears throat> so the federal authorities really had no choice but to prosecute Vang Pao fully within the law, because anti-communism is now a historical artifact. Anti-terrorism is now a major of our government. And, and sadly, all the Hmong are, are protesting, the, those that are out there, that he's a great fighter against communism and therefore he'd be, he should be released. Well, that logic, in fact, gave him a kind of a de facto immunity to prosecution for decades. That's over now. The last question, which probably should have been the first question, Dr. McCoy, is, uh, is to kind of take, a, take a, a long view. I remember so well when you published in 1972 The Politics of Heroin in Southeast Asia. It sparked a huge controversy all around the world. The CAA tried to, uh, to, to censor your book, and um, it, it's considered by, by all standards to be quite groundbreaking and to have basically alerted the world as to what was going on in re- regarding uh, arms and, and drugs in Southeast Asia. How have things evolved since you wrote that book uh, to the present in terms of this whole situation of, of opium smuggling and funding of armies? Uh, the patterns have continued. Uh, between 1975, when we exited from Vietnam right up to the present, 
there has been a close correspondence between CIA-covered operations and global drug trafficking. Uh, the next instance was in La uh, beyond Laos was in, in Afghanistan from 1979 to 1992. Uh, the CIA was allied with the in an attempt to drive uh, the Soviet uh, Union, the, so uh, the, the Soviet forces, out of Afghanistan. Uh, the Mujahideen took advantage of the CIA alliance to traffic in opium across the, the boundary into the northwestern frontier province area of Pakistan, and that region became a, a major supplier of, of illicit heroin to the world market during the 1980s. At one point in 1981, Afghanistan was supplying something like 65% of the U.S. illicit heroin. When that operation wound down, uh, the traffic continued in Afghanistan, and then in 2001, when in the aftermath of 9-11, when we intervened in Afghanistan, uh, what we did, we sent in just a few hundred special forces, lots of air power, and also we sent in CIA operatives with $70 million in bundles of $100 bills to pay warlords to break open their arsenals. The warlords who had been CIA assets during the Cold War uh, then overthrew the Taliban and filled the vacuum in the countryside. And so Afghanistan's opium production went from 180 tons in the last year under the Taliban to 2,400 tons in the first year under the United States. It's now up to something like 6,100 tons. It provides 92% of the world's illicit opium supply. And many of the traffickers are local warlords who are allies and assets in our campaign against the Taliban, not to mention the Taliban itself is profiting from the opium and heroin traffic inside Afghanistan. So the same politics of, of opium and heroin that we saw in Indochina back in the 60s and 1970s are persisting right to the present. And many of the most powerful officials in Afghanistan, cabinet ministers, the police chief of Kabul, almost every significant regional political figure is in some way implicated in the traffic. It's an, and that's a very simple reason. Opium is the largest business in Afghanistan. It provides something like 60% of the gross domestic product of the country. Uh, opium is king of Afghanistan, and all in political power bend before the king. Uh, and that's a consequence of a quarter century of covered operations by the CIA in Afghanistan. So the patterns have continued to the present. Just one last comment on this whole thing. Please. You mentioned the long perspective about you know, the drug traffic and how things have moved beyond Southeast Asia. I think if we take a long perspective on what's happening with the Hmong, I, uh, my own personal view is that this is part of the Hmong becoming fully Hmong American. Um, this is a kind of exile politics that we've seen really over the past two centuries, beginning with the Bonnie Prince Charlie Scots who fled into exile in France and hungered for a return. And the way these politics tend to go is that uh, over time, the exiles become increasingly divorced from the reality back in the homeland that they long for. And life back in the homeland moves on. Whatever the revolt or the movement might have been, well, the society heals and moves forward, and the exiles are no longer part of it. And over time, there's an increasing divergence between the political reality back home and their longing, their hopes, their aspirations, their dreams. And as this contradiction grows, the exile politics become increasingly less rational, increasingly pathological.
Uh, and this manifests itself in two ways. Violence towards members of the exile group itself, lots of infighting, faction fighting, uh, hyperheated, murderous politics often can involve assassinations. And then when possible, escalating violence, whether fantasies of violence or reality of violence, directed back at the homeland. And I think that's what we've seen in this case with the Hmong Americans. Uh, there's been growing violence among the Hmong community in the Minneapolis-St. Paul area, shootings, arsons, and the like that's been building upward in the last couple of years. At the same time, we've seen this bizarre plot to create a scenario of murder and mayhem, uh, uh, killing thousands upon thousands of civilians in Vientiane. And it's a very sad, tragic, but rather logical extension of exile politics. And it's a phase, I think, that, that every exile community moves through. The older generation fades away. Uh, these kinds of activities disappear. And the second and third generation become fully American. And they don't really care or pay too much attention to this kind of stuff anymore. So it's a transitional process. Well, Dr. McCoy, I'm sure a lot of our listeners are going to want to know uh, where they can go for more information. What, what website would you send them to? No, there's not, there's not a single website. For the global drug traffic, I'd, I'd recommend my book, the 2003 edition. It's reasonably current, and it covers the, uh, the, the continuity of, of covered operations from Indochina, Laos, and the Hmong, all the way to the Pashtuns in Afghanistan today. Our guest is Alfred W. McCoy, professor of history at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, who spent the last 30 years writing about Southeast Asia history and politics. We appreciate very much the work you've done, Dr. McCoy, and, and, and the fact that you've spoken with us today. Hope this uh, will not be your last appearance on our show. Thank you, Doc. I'm Douglas Everett. You're listening to Radio Parallax. Stay tuned for more in Segment 3.